Welcome to the very first episode of the podcast. My guest will be Starfish writer-director A.T. White and psychologist and author of Superhero Therapy, Dr. Janina Scarlett. Let's save the world. But first, let me tell you a little bit about why this podcast exists. My name is David, and like many of you, I am a lifelong geek. Horror, sci-fi, superhero, fantasy. I love all of that stuff. And I'm a lifelong sufferer of depression. And as I've recently come to find, something called generalized anxiety disorder. Now, this came to a head last year in 2019 when I was suffering a particularly bad spell and came very close to killing myself. And it was in the midst of this that I was watching a movie called Starfish, starring Virginia Gardner of Marvel's The Runaways and 2019's Halloween. This is a movie that on the surface is a sci-fi horror film. Gardner plays a character named Aubrey, who's just lost her best friend and is in mourning. She wakes up to find that the world has been overrun by interdimensional monsters and she may be the only person left on Earth for all she knows. But her friend knew that this was going to happen and has left behind a mixtape that just might save the world. If Aubrey can overcome her feelings of guilt and depression and regrets and find the strength to venture out into the world, discover what is out there and help make a new world for herself. Now, this movie hit me very hard. And I couldn't stop thinking about it over the next several days. And I kept thinking, what about me? Why can't I find the courage to face my inner demons and uh, overcome them and, and venture out into this scary world? So in a sense, it inspired me to do exactly that. It gave me the push that I needed to face the monsters I had inside and start getting the help that I've been getting ever since I saw it. And it's made me realize that these concepts, these movies, these comic books, these characters that we love, they're more than just stories for us. We connect with them on a deeper level. So I want to examine these films in a different way than what you may be used to. Let's examine these movies from a psychological, a cultural, and yeah, sometimes a political viewpoint. Now, I want to make this perfectly clear. I don't have a degree in filmmaking. I'm not a professional film critic. I've never run a podcast in my life. I'm not a PhD in anything. I'm just like you. I'm a fan of these concepts, and I want to explore them on a deeper level than what you may be used to. And with that out of the way, it is an honor to welcome as my very first guest, the writer and director of Starfish, Mr. A.T. White. How you doing, man? I am great, man. It is. It's an honor to be here, sincerely. Like, thank you so much for reaching out and asking me to be yeah, on your first episode. This movie, I believe, saved my life. At the very least, it changed my life. So this means a lot to me to have you here. And Starfish, everyone, it's a unique film. It's an experimental film. It seems to me like a very personal film that could only have been told by you. Tell me where you were as a person in your head when this idea came up. I mean, I think it's arguably too personal, the film. (laughs) It is, yeah, it was... 2014, well, yeah, it was 2014. We were working on a different feature at the time. That was meant to be my first feature. That was a lot more regular, I guess you could say. And then I was going through a divorce and then my best friend passed away to cancer. Uh, She had been sort of fighting it. She had a very unique form of cancer that was actually of the heart. It was like a very, very, just a handful of people in the world have it at one time. Um, So it was very rare. And she passed away when I was abroad. And I, I do a lot of traveling. I go back and forth a lot between America and England, where I'm from. So I wasn't there. 
when she passed and I wasn't able to really process this and going through a divorce at the same time and being in you know in a different country and kind of adapting to all this stuff I um I've had a history with depression my whole life but it became it was a very different level you know it was a very um it was very significant to me and what it represented and where I was in my life and the sort of sacrifices you're making you know so yeah I struggled for a few months and then it was a couple of months later I'm a big fan of the mountains so we go to Colorado quite a lot and me and my partner went to the Colorado mountains and we hid away in a little shack and she does some writing as well and I wrote the first in in like with snow everywhere. We actually had to like hike to the cabin because our car got stuck in snow. And then we were there for about two weeks just playing the Witness video game and writing stuff. And I wrote the first draft of stuff is there purely. I didn't expect to make it, honestly. I, I just made, wrote it because I had to write something because I was in a, just a very negative headspace. And normally when I'm in that headspace, I do music, but I didn't have any way to do music at that point. And I was in a, you know, in a period of my life where I was writing a lot of scripts. So that just seemed the natural way to do it. And it took about a year then. Like it, it, the first draft of it, I mean, we can, you, if you want to know more about it, you can ask me and I'll happily tell you. But the first draft was too depressing. It was too insular. And I showed it to people and they're like, there's something here, but this is way too introspective. And it took, I went away from it for about a year. I didn't th- really think about it for quite a long time. And then exactly a year later, we went back to almost the same place in the mountains and I rewrote it. And that's what became, yeah, the film. The thing about depression is, I know with me, I was caught in that cycle. It kind of ground me down and I couldn't escape it. With you, it seemed like art was your way of maybe working through it. Do you feel like the process of making the movie kind of helped you get out of the depression? Or? So to speak bluntly about it, um, I think both. I think writing it, yeah. Writing it absolutely helped me at the time. It gave me somewhere to pour everything I was feeling into something and and it gave me some worth. You know, it made it feel like, well, if I can just dedicate to this, then that would mean something to my friend. And throughout the process of doing the film, then when we came to shooting it, that helped as well. But you're in a different period, you know, like making a film takes a long time. This is the problem. When you write a song, it's or you write a book even, you know, you can just get certain things and trap them. Making a film, it's a long process with a lot of people involved. So by the time we're shooting, I'm in a different stage of grief and depression. So that was, a, you know, that was a different sort of process there because you're involving a lot of other people, which is a strange way to go through <laughs> a personal experience. And, uh, and then, I mean, I'm sure we'll talk about Ginny later, but Ginny was very helpful in me working through that cathars- uh, cathartic kind of process. But then, to be honest, by the time I got to Post, we had some problems with Post because we were a very small film, we had very little money, and we made a lot of mistakes. And so things drag on. You know, you're asking a lot of favors from people and then people have to leave the project and then you get something back and it's not quite right. And so the post-production took way too long. And there was a point where I, I had to do the score for the film and I'd been putting it off because by that point, I was years after, you know, my friend had actually passed. And... I wasn't, I just didn't want to go back into that headspace. And I had to, I had to get out photos of her and put them around a little flat in London while on a stupid little MIDI keyboard, I tried to write strings <laughs> that were as beautiful <laughs> as her, her memory meant to me. So I ended up doing that in just three days. I wrote the score in three days. We then recorded it in three days and then mixed it in two days before we had to hand it over. And that was a point where that was actually quite detrimental. And then to be honest, like touring with the film in festivals and then we did a live very limited theatrical, which I went with the film to as many places as I could because I wanted to meet people. The, talking about the film was kind of negative to me because then it's like I couldn't leave that part of my life behind. And it was important for me to move on. But actually talking to other people who had connected with something to do with the film, that was everything to me. Like I was so depressed. Like after we made the film, I was arguably at the worst point. Like I was, I was suicidal at that point. And, and I just thought I'd waste everybody's time, everybody's money and made a piece of shit that no one would care about. And it really, and that my friend would be ashamed of it. Like it really was destroying me. And then we got into a festival and, and which feels great, but I try not to get validation from that sort of thing. And it wasn't until I met one person, like and there was a particular person who had gone through something um, and they came and like they were crying and they shook my hand and like talked to me about their experience. And from that point on, I was fine. Because I was like, if just one person gets something out of this, you know, that I might have gotten out of someone else's film, then that's that means everything to me. So sorry, that was a long answer to a simple no, question. No, it's, it's, it's fine. <laughs> was it an intentional thing for you to, you know, we all have monsters that chase us in our heads. We all have personal apocalypses, events that can happen to us. Was it important to include that in the film of face that apocalypse? Try to and move on. And even though it's scary, you know, tomorrow's going to be a scary day, but face it. No, absolutely. And I think one of the big benefits for me was during making the film and getting to this point, you think through things a lot. 
Um, and I have to think about what message it is because you got to be careful. I do think there's a responsibility. You know, I do think people should get to make whatever art they want, but I do think there's a responsibility when you're talking about things like this. So I had to really consider. And the, again, the first drafts, the, the message was very negative because I was in a very negative place. The first drafts really did end with a version where it was pretty inarguable that she commits suicide at the end. Like it was very depressing. Um, and I had to kind of evolve my own thinking with it. And it, and it was definitely very much, uh, I mean, there's a lot of metaphors in the film. Again, for some people, too many metaphors in the film. But for me, that that is definitely what you're, what you're saying is the is the message that I want people uh, to discuss. Like, I don't really like films that tell you to feel a certain way, you know. But I like films that make you think about things and you go away and you discuss it. And and because nothing's that simple in life, there's never a one answer to anything. It's always more complicated. But I do think the important thing is to to be brave and give yourself over to something. Like, it, it is important to realize that that's okay. Like, it's all right to feel depressed. It's okay to mourn someone. It's okay even if you don't have a good reason to be depressed and still feel depressed. Like, that's fine. Um, and there's a lot of pressure from the world to tell you, no, 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 you're meant to feel happy all the time. And I actually, I'm writing a, I'm writing a few scripts right now. One of them is, is really about how happiness is a negative word. Like, it's this thing that we're taught from a very young age, you're meant to be happy. And depending which culture you're born into, here are the defined ways that you're meant to be happy. And that pressure just ends up ruling your entire life. And for many people, quite understandably, that's too much because it's unfair. It's not right. You know, we all have our different ways to feel joy. Um, and I don't think depression is a negative thing at all. I think depression could be wonderful as long as there's a balance to it, as long as you're appreciating that it's part of the journey and not all of the journey. You know, it's, it shouldn't ever control you. So that's definitely part of what I was trying to talk about with the film is, is she is controlled by her emotional journey for a long, long time in the film. And it's not until near the end when really you could take the message at the end of like, oh, okay, you fucked up. Everything's terrible now. But instead, she tries to turn it into something positive. Yeah. That's how I took it. Uh, <laughs> I know with me, I, I was stuck in that depression for years. But you talked about this movie starting a conversation with, you know, with people. When I watched it, a couple of days passed, I found myself still thinking about it and, and thinking... Why can't I do? Don't I almost owe it to A.T. White to, to take a step into the unknown, to face this dangerous outside world and confront my depression? And it did, you know, the, the, uh, the immediate week, two weeks, month, whatever was very trying, very difficult because all of those feelings are coming back. But I'm through it and that's great. You mentioned, uh, Virginia who is incredible in this. Uh, I've been a fan of hers for a long time. Getting to see her in a role that's so nuanced, has so much depth to it, to it she knocked it out of the park. How did you meet up with her? What, what was it about her that said, this is Aubrey? If I can, if I can just very quickly, I just want to say like you, yeah, what you said at the beginning, I can't even put into work. Like, I don't want to seem like an asshole to anyone listening because I'm not really talking about it. I do very badly with any anyone saying anything nice to me. Like the person who comes over and says they hated something I made, I can have a good conversation with when someone says something nice. I don't know how to deal with it. Um, but obviously your story, like, I can't even tell you how much that means to me. Ginny, so I mean, we did the normal, you know, we did the normal thing and it was my first time doing it in a proper Hollywood setting. You know, going in and doing the big casting, videoing it, you write down a list of the people you want to see. You're so, like incredibly honored that some people that I had, you know, been fans of from various works and wanted to see came in and read for us. And Ginny was one of those people, I think you had said to me, you, you, you originally knew her from Project Almanac before yes. everything else. I was the same. I'd seen her in Project Almanac. I enjoyed that film. I thought it was fun. Uh, not, you know, not an incredible movie, but like a good fun movie. And, I, and she was just one of those people where you see her and you're like, I feel like you can do a lot more. Like I really, and not, not to disparage because that film's just trying to be fun. But I was like, I feel like you could do something meaty and dramatic and difficult and challenging. So I was really happy that she came in and wrote for us and she was incredible. Everyone loved her. She was one of the few people who could do both. We had like two scenes people had to do. One was a lot more about the fear, you know, a lot more about the sort of the palpitations of it. Sure. And the other one was very melancholic. And it was actually a scene which sadly we had to edit out of the movie about my grandma. And that's where she told me. I think there's one sentence from it left in the movie. It was this beautiful like seven minute scene that Ginny had to learn off by heart and she fucking nailed it and no one gets to see it. Um, but yeah, so she did both. And most people could do one or the other well. It was very rare to see someone who could do both sides of the character well. And she really nailed it. But we were concerned that she was too young. Originally, the part was written for someone closer to my age, to be honest, and just someone who was a bit older, because essentially she was playing me. So we went for a lunch and we chatted. J just to interrupt, you've never looked Please. better. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, I feel I feel like I'm crumbling to pieces. Every single day. <laughs> uh, yeah, so we we did the LA thing that I kind of hate, which you go for a lunch with someone. 
And normally, like I've quickly learned, you think that means something, but it doesn't. It just everyone apparently has too much free time and they want to go for lunches. But I met with her and it did mean something. We had this lovely you know, like connection about the movie. She told me she hated the cold. So this is perfect because you can be freezing. But she really wanted to be challenged. Like she really wanted to be challenged and to, yeah, like face something that she hadn't had to do before. And she really impressed me with how mature, how maturely she kind of was looking at everything. And we didn't get to do many rehearsals because, you know, she was a busy person. She hadn't done Runaways or Halloween at that point. She got cast in both of those after she had shot our film, but before we were released. But, she, you know, she was doing a whole bunch of stuff. So we didn't get to do rehearsals, but instead we did a bunch of Skypes and I would send her stuff. I sent her a lot of books, a lot of films because what was, I trusted her as an actor. I was like, I know you're going to be able to do this as long as we're both relating to the character from the same place. And that was kind of the key. The key was I had to say to her, you can ask me anything about my life, no matter how personal, it doesn't matter. Um, and then she kindly let me do the same with her, although I didn't need to as much, obviously. And then she, she found that bridge. She was like, okay, this is what it meant to you. And this is how I can relate that to an experience from my own life. And it's, yeah, it's real testament to her how she could do that. And I really hope, and again, she's, her career is doing fantastic. And I think she's wonderful in the role she's doing. But I really hope she gets the chance to do some more things like this, which, yeah, as in roles, which can really push herself because she's, yeah, got an incredible amount of range. I think she, first of all, she's amazing. <laughs> she's amazing in it. Somebody give her some awards right now. But um, I've, I've read interviews with her in the past where she's before, I think before she even signed up with this, is that she looks for roles that can impact people and start conversations and, you know, help people get through tough times. Uh, I think that her role in Runaways is reflective of that. Even in Project Almanac, she was a bullied uh, high school kid. So getting to sink her teeth into this... Uh, do you have any uh, examples of how she took the material and maybe elevated it from where you were or altered it or gave it a different point of view? I mean, honestly, just her character because Jenny's, you know, a very, she's a very interesting person. She's got two very different sides to her personality. Uh, one, and I hope she would be okay with me saying this, but one is an incredibly mature way to look at life. And the other is kind of like a child's for a child's eyes. Um, and that's a very unique place to be. And I think that's a very a powerful place to be as an actor because it means you can tap into two different things which are very polar opposite but support each other. So like when we were shooting, it, again, I would explain to her, you know, what how the scene would mean to me. She would find a bridge to where it was for her but we would have, we'd have like this signal basically. We came up with like, we didn't want, we were a small crew. We didn't want people to understand when we were like necessarily signaling certain things to each other. And I had one for her when it was like, you know what? We've got like a good take that I'm happy with. Now you get to do one for yourself. And it would be a certain thing where the last take would be she could just go forget everything I told her and just go fucking crazy and she would go pretty crazy in most of them yeah there was one sadly which that most of that scene had to be cut there's like an hour cut out of this movie if not more so of like scenes not just trimming like and to be honest like it, I knew I wouldn't use them that often in the end film but it means every now and then you just get a little bit of just Ginny being Ginny <laughs> and that's something you can't make up and you can't direct you know and I think that's wonderful when you get an actor who's able to you know, be a character, but then also really push themselves through it and be brave with that. And hugely indebted. Because, I mean, can you imagine? Like, honestly, like this film's like every shot she's in pretty much. It's, it's absolutely insane. And every, every film set is more hectic than anybody I think thinks it is. It's harder work than people think it is. It's also a, such a big privilege to be a part of. But something like this, where you're at, we're at 11,000 feet, it's difficult to breathe, it's incredibly cold, and she's having to work constantly constantly like, there's no break you know and then switch from emotional extreme to emotional extreme in this it's incredibly challenging and the whole film would fall apart if you didn't have someone who could handle that kind of thing so i'm definitely indebted to her with that. well there's a balance because she has a desire to be alone and yet she wants to escape her loneliness mm -hmm. and that's something that i think if you're not experiencing that and you see the movie you're entertained by the film but if you are experiencing that like i did it really hits hard and I think can, uh, like with me, impacted me for days afterwards. And I said, I got to escape this loneliness. I got to, um, you know, I I've got to get past this. So another thing that is big in the movie, it's odd to compare the film to Guardians of the Galaxy. Um, uh, <laughs> I mean, they're both sci-fi. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, both of them are the feel-good hits of the summer. Yeah. Um, but the the mixtape plays not only important part you know to the story but to the film itself uh the music plays an important role just like with guardians of the galaxy the music played such an important role in the scenes themselves i guess that comes from your musical background and the idea of a mixtape that can save the world no one's ever thought of that one so congratulations 
where did where did including the music come into it? So whenever when I write a script, uh, yeah, I don't. I mean, I would say because my musical background, but I think my musical background is just because I love music that much, you know. So uh, whenever I write a script, I listen to the songs that the character would be listening to. I make a playlist of it, um, and I know quite a lot of writers to do that. And I will always put the songs in the, in the script. And then I'll send them with the script and hope that people listen to them. Obviously, no one does other than my manager, but other people pretend, and that's nice. Um, but I, and I'm always kind of careful with it because, you know, particularly I'm, I'm, I'm nobody. I don't have many resources. I just like, I'm aware of what my restraints might be with who I can actually afford when he gets, gets to doing a license on a song. Um, and luckily, I'm into a lot of weird little bands and a lot of indie bands and bands that are now defunct and stuff like that. So when it came to doing this movie, the first. I mean, the tape was always there, to be fair. And I can appreciate, I think some people love it. Some people see it as a gimmick. It was never meant to be a gimmick. It was very much just me and my friend who the film was written for. We used to give each other playlists all the time. We would do it on CD because that was the era we were in. I grew up, though, with mixtapes. That was my heritage of music. And I spent far more time doing playlists on mixtapes. And it meant so much more. I just like tangible media. I like having a relationship uh, with the art that means something to me. And, you know, for me, it was just very romantic. I, I've still got, you know, shoeboxes of ex-girlfriends who would give me letters and mixtapes and stuff, you know, and I can open it up and smell it still, the perfume they would put on those letters, you know, it's wonderful. And, and the mixtapes still work, which is amazing, <laughs> whereas the CDs don't most of the time because they're scratched out. But me and my friend would just give these CDs back and forth. So I was like, well, I know music was very important to us and she was in my band for a brief amount of time as well. And it's like, I, I need music to be a part of this. And I didn't really think about it too much. It just very naturally became the metaphor I needed at that point of like listening to this stuff and listening to the songs. There was a song I actually wrote for her and I, well, not for her, uh, for her to sing. Uh, and I actually said this before, I don't think, but it was a song I wrote for her, which you can get it. It's on iTunes under one of my side projects called Smudge, uh, but without a U, so S-M-D-G-E. And there's a line in there where she sings about having uh, cancer crawling through her veins. And I remember after she passed away, her family emailed me and they said at her sort of reception, a funeral kind of reception, we really want to play some of the music that she sang for you. So can you pick some out? And I was going through them to decide which ones to pick out and send to them. And then I got to that one, which is one of the ones she sings like really well. She's really beautiful, her voice on it. And then that line, and I'd have forgotten the lyrics and that line suddenly came in and it destroyed me. Like absolutely destroyed me because obviously having her sing about that and it very literally was a cancer that was in her veins. So it, that was something which was like, oh, you feel this weight of correlation between the two things that was really debilitating. But because of those things, I was like, well, music has to be in this film. It was just very important. Um, and so I chose songs which, which we would give to each other. I chose other songs just that I, you know, mean a lot to me um, personally. And then it's hard because the film's very quiet. I knew there wouldn't be much speaking in the film. I didn't want her talking out loud too much. So the songs have to become the voice. Um, and they're more the voice of Grace talking through her, you know. I knew the score would be very melancholic and representative of Aubrey. And I knew that the songs had to be a little bit more buoyant and representative of Grace and Aubrey's relationship. Yeah, so it was very difficult picking songs that I loved, thought I could get the license for, maybe meant something to me. And then also the lyrics weren't too on the nose, but, you know, had enough information in there that hopefully if you listen to the lyrics, you'll get a little bit more of an understanding from each scene. And that's scary, particularly when you got Sigur Ross in your film, because I didn't know if we'd get that at all. And that was a really, I was terrified. We got to like the last week of post-production. I was like, I don't think we're going to get Sigur Ross. This is terrifying. And we were going to have to change the whole ending and it was going to break my heart. So I'm very grateful to them for allowing them to be in our film. Well, I've heard from many, many people that music helps save their lives as well. And music helps people get through tough times. I've never seen anyone communicate that in such a way of this music will help you defeat your monsters. <laughs> I think that was a brilliant way of expressing that uh, in the film, uh, among many other brilliant aspects of the film that I could talk to you for hours about, and I will not keep you that long. Uh, I do want to talk about uh, something else that for a first time uh, director, I believe, right? Yeah. You took chances with this movie that seasoned directors would be scared of. There are parts of the film, and I won't spoil anything, but there are parts of the film that kind of defy reality, uh, kind of break the verisimilitude intentionally. What was the, uh, and I told you that what my take on that was, but what was your reasoning for kind of including those moments in? To reflect kind of what she's well, thinking. Well, this extends from the music. So like, yeah, what I didn't say before is, is there's a reason there's seven tapes 
you know, in the film. The seven tapes represent the seven stages of grief. That's like what the music's meant to be there for is like each of those stages. And yeah, each one then triggers an emotional reaction to her that it, that is very deeply embedded in her her own personal reality and her, of her, uh, with her depression. And so for me, it was just very natural. Like these have to open doors. They have to, because that's how it feels or it's how it felt for me anyway. Like you're going through these doors into different versions of your own world and of your own life and how you relate to the world around you and yourself. And the the film deals a lot with disassociation and it deals a lot with, there are, I, I keep saying it a lot, but I think it's something that people who don't go through this don't understand necessarily. It's like there are different layers of disassociation and a very broad layer is just feeling disconnected from the world around you. That's something that, quite a lot of people go through at some point in their life. And then a different level of that is feeling disconnected from yourself. And you don't feel like you are you anymore. You don't, you feel like a character in a film or you feel like someone in a comic book or whatever. You know, you don't feel, you feel like an outsider looking at yourself and you're a stranger. And it's a very discomforting and numbing thing to feel. Um, and that was something that I really wanted to work hard to try and find what's the most visual way to use this medium to, to get this into the film. And some people, again, if you're not going through this stuff, like you very early, very kindly said, if people aren't attaching to something, then they can enjoy the film anyway. My experience has been, that's not true. <laughs> <laughs> people don't attach to the emotional core. They hate this film well, very, very, very lividly. And I respect that completely. But the people who do attach to the same sort of you know, emotions that I've been through, yeah, they, 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 hopefully, they're getting their own perspective or something like that from it. Um, and for me, for me, like that, sorry, it's like you say, it's hard without spoiling stuff because there's not many things to spoil. But like when you are a first time director, I was very lucky. We went with a very small amount of money. Like we could have gone with a bit more money and I would have had less control. And we decided to go for a tiny amount of money and have full control. And that's for better or worse. Like I do actually believe there's a great, a great thing that can come from business pushing against a creative. And then the creative is forced to hopefully make the best decisions in a, you know, in a healthy relationship like that. If it's just the creative and they have all the power, then I do think there are things that if I could go back now, I would change because I do think it, it's a little bit too self-indulgent. But it's, it's you know, when you have very little money and you're a first-time director, you, you, you're, you're more stupid than you might be later. <laughs> and you can be just brave and make crazy decisions and just put in everything that you want to put in. And, um, and this was just everything I was feeling. Again, going back to your first question, the problem is you, you're, what you're feeling changes a little bit throughout the process of making a film. Um, so then by the time you get to the very end, it, it becomes about, okay, what's, how's the best way to take everything we have and, and refine that key message that we're talking about? You mentioned earlier meeting people on the festival circuit and that sort of thing. Are people bringing their own personal... I know with me, I haven't experienced exactly what Aubrey experienced. No interdimensional demons have uh, attacked me lately. Uh, it's coming. Uh, it, I'm sure it will. Uh, <laughs> but... Uh, but even though my experiences don't exactly match hers, I felt it in my own life, not well, obviously without giving too personal details. Uh, what kind of things have people, are people getting their own, are people seeing their own lives in this film? Or Like, yeah, the people are connecting with it. And like, that's what I mean, like, I feel very uncomfortable saying anything positive about anything I've made. But the people who are connecting with it have been very kind and a lot of them have reached out and yeah, doing that tour. Yeah, I would meet the people who really hated it and I could tell. And I wanted them to talk to me as well because I'm, like I said, I'm much more comfortable with that. But also, that's completely valid. Like the thing is, if someone comes over, if you've made something and someone comes over to you and they say, I love this, I'm happy for them because anything that brings someone joy is great. If I hate a movie, but someone else loves it, that's great. They got something out of that. Unless it's something that I feel is legitimately a dangerous propaganda movie in some way, you know, something that's warping people's brains to have a negative perspective. For the most part, it's like if you get joy out of something, wonderful. But I always know there's someone else in the room who really hated whatever I made. So, and with this film especially, this is a very polarizing film. So I don't take it too seriously. And But but hearing the people's stories, that was what was so lovely for me. I'm not very good with people normally. I don't, I'm not like, I've been pretty insulated most of my life. Um, I like to hide away a lot. And I'm trying to get better with that. And this film's been healing for me in that way and that I had to go and meet people. Um, and I had to go and talk to people. And I, and I really enjoyed that process of hearing people's stories. And people will just message me on Instagram or Twitter just to tell me something that they've gone through. And I don't know that I can do anything or help in any way. But if they want to reach out, then it's lovely to be able to, you know, to connect and share some stories about something. And hopefully realize that all of us are going through a unique journey. Like everyone's journey is unique. There's so many connections. You know, the more people you talk to and communicate with, the more you realize, oh, everybody 
It's like there's some, well, not everyone, but everybody's going through something. And there's so many people who've gone through something similar to what you've gone through. It, that's really important, I think, to realize because most people feel so alone in this. And so a movie that started off being so depressing you couldn't film it has now it's out there. People are watching it. Lives are literally being saved. Lives are being changed. And surely that's uh, a rewarding experience for you, uh, even though you can't accept uh, positive criticism. Uh, you know, surely that's um, the best positive thing that could come out of the film. Um, you know, absolutely. No, absolutely. Like, I mean, I'm a very, I've been too emotional my whole life. Now I'm too numb. Um, and I'm trying to feel things again <laughs> that I can regulate a little bit. And yes, no, I mean, there's nothing like, I believe, you know, I believe you can make movies as entertainment and I have no problem with that whatsoever. I love many movies that are purely there to be a distraction and entertainment. And some people's lives are just really hard and they don't need to be there for art. That's all they need. They just want entertainment. But I also believe movies can be, you know, a piece of communication. They don't need to entertain. They can challenge you and they can make you feel connected to something. And my personal favorite movies can do both. And I hope if I'm lucky enough to continue making movies, I can try and push a little bit better, you know, to get to get on that fence between the two things where you can entertain people, but also allow them to feel connected. Um, so yeah, like from this movie, yeah, something which I, I thought was everyone, everybody would hate <laughs> to connect with anybody has been the absolute absolute best thing I could take out of it. And it has made me reconsider everything. Like I had three scripts we were trying to go in production on. I scrapped all of them after I met people after this film. Um, and I started rewriting like whole different scripts because it made me realize what I want to do. Like I want to, I will never probably make a movie quite as messy as this again, but I want to make movies that are still saying something that's always coming from a very honest, very deeply personal place. Albeit they, you know, they might have a simpler structure moving forward and something a bit more digestible for more people. But yeah, like I, 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 that's more important to me, communicating and being able to have more conversations with people. So from a professional standpoint, are you, are you still working this film or have you moved to the next project, which is... <laughs> I'm not allowed to say. Uh, but I will say in this conversation somewhere, I've, I've given the name of what hopefully the next film will be. <laughs> Which is a little Easter egg. Um, <laughs> Start digging through that file, y'all. I'm annoying like that. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, I've, there was a beautiful moment. Honestly, there was a beautiful moment a few months ago where I realized, oh, I have no more paperwork to do with this film, really. I mean, obviously, there's still stuff. We're still selling it to some territories, but my sales agents and the producers deal with a lot of that. I'm just kind of there to advise and stuff. And it's so nice. It's so nice to get to leave this part of my life behind. And there's a little bit of guilt with that because, you know, it does represent a huge part of my life with, with my friend who passed away. But I want to keep talking about that. You know, it's like the stuff I'm writing right now and trying to get made right now. It's again, it wouldn't be as self-indulgent. It's not just about mourning for someone. You know, I'm not going to repeat those things, but it doesn't go away. You don't feel depression and then you're fine. Uh, you don't, you know, mourn for someone and then you don't miss them anymore. Like it's, and you know, even if you've broken up with someone, that's a type of mourning as well. You know, it's, it's this thing where we like to compartmentalize everything as a human race and, it's like when people break up with someone and then they want to paint all of that journey as a negative thing and they just want to forget about them and moving on. And I think that's terrible. It's like you're literally saying 10 years of your life, whatever, meant was stupid. Like, why did you even do it? Is right. it because a couple of months were terrible or a year was terrible? It's like, no, you had a journey and like you should celebrate that. Like, it's so lucky if we have any connections with anybody at any point. Obviously, it's going to end because spoilers, it's all going to end. <laughs> Like whether we want to or not, it's going to end. And no matter if you believe in religion or chaos or whatever, it's still going to end at some point. That, that is one spoiler we can tell about Starfish. The movie does have an ending. Yeah, um, people have, some people are very grateful for. <laughs> <laughs> well, I loved every single second of it. And uh, you know, on a much deeper level than just entertainment, but I was entertained as well. And I've entertained talking to you. Thank you so much for uh, spending time with us and helping me kick this off. This this whole podcast exists because of you. So uh, mm. I'm certainly glad that you agreed to be on it because otherwise that would be embarrassing. Man, I am honestly, I'm so psyched about it. I really am. And the stuff you got coming up sounds fantastic. So I really hope it works out. I'm looking forward to listening. Anytime you want to talk more about anything at all, just let me know. I'm happy to come back. Thank you so much. And for all of you sci-fi fans out there, seriously, you have to check out Starfish. Please do yourself a favor and seek it out. Now, 
Before we move further, I do want to address the fact that in this episode, we are dealing with some pretty heavy subjects. So if you are someone who is dealing with depression or suicidal thoughts, I am begging you, seek help. There are plenty of free or low-cost services out there that want to help you. And even if it doesn't seem like it, there are friends or family, coworkers, people in your community who care and want to help. Hopefully, over time, this podcast will build a community of supportive people as well. And if you are having a crisis, please take down this number for the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. It's 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. I am sure there is someone there who wants to help you through this. But let's face it, mental health in the geek community doesn't get nearly as much attention as it deserves. Thankfully, my next guest is out to change all of that. She is a psychologist and the author of Superhero Therapy, Dr. Janina Scarlett. How are you? Hi, I'm doing really well. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I'm very, very glad to have you. And first of all, every superhero needs an origin story, and yours is incredible. Uh, Could you please fill us in on how things got started for you and what led to you being a superhero therapist? You're so sweet. Thank you. Um, I was born and raised in Ukraine of the former Soviet Union. And when I was just a few months shy of my third birthday, there was a massive explosion a few cities away from us at the Chernobyl nuclear power plant. And so unfortunately, what that meant for me and most people living in those areas is that we were all exposed to massive amounts of radiation and suffered from acute radiation poisoning. So unfortunately, I met, I spent most of my childhood in and out of the hospital. My immune system was severely weakened. Um, I actually couldn't even uh, fight a simple cold, so I would often have to be in the hospital for many weeks, even with a simple cold. Thankfully, most of those effects have now gone away, but the, the side effect that has persisted to this day and probably will be with me forever is that anytime the weather changes, I suffer from severe migraines, which occasionally lead to seizures. And so when I was 12 years old, my family and I were able to come to the United States as refugees to escape persecution that we were going through. And it was when we first moved to the United States that I fully started realizing just how much I was going through. I didn't know that I was going through PTSD or depression. I didn't know that this is what it was called. But I was having nightmares and flashbacks and I was really struggling making friends and and feeling connected to other people. And I felt like I was the only one that was going through it. Of course, I didn't realize that a lot of kids around me were going through the same thing. And it wasn't until I was 16 years old that I saw the first X-Men movie and it completely changed my life because I realized that a lot of people also feel like they're alone, that a lot of people have been made to feel like they're somehow different and like their differences are somehow not acceptable. But actually, what I realized from the X-Men film is that our differences are actually unique and they make us special. And the X-Men were able to use what superpowers they had, what, what made them unique to band together and help other people. And I had this profound moment of realizing that we can all use our origin stories to understand where we've come from, but our origin stories don't have to define us. We're not the victims of our stories. We are the survivors of them. And we can use them to get on the path of heroism, of altruism, of helping other people. And so it was at that moment that I realized that I was really interested in stories and fiction and also in mental health. And so um, at that point, I was in high school and I took my first ever psychology class in high school and then went on this path of becoming a clinical psychologist. And now I incorporate popular culture into therapy to help my clients cope and recover from their own traumatic origin stories. Uh, well, thank you for that, because I, I like thinking of, of mine as an origin story as well. So you've, you've covered the entire geek culture. You've done uh, superhero therapy, Harry Potter therapy. You've contributed to uh, Wonder Woman psychology, Star Wars, and let's not forget Star Trek uh, psychology. Could you explain a little bit about 
how you use these concepts to treat people's uh, PTSD or depression. I know you had done some work with soldiers uh, regarding Superman, who is a hero of mine. Sure. Um, So for many years, I was working with active duty service members, mostly Marines, actually, who had just come back from Afghanistan or Iraq. And many of them believed themselves to be a failure just for having developed a mental health disorder. And it would absolutely break my heart because these incredible individuals who have been through some of the worst kinds of traumatic experiences that anyone can imagine would say that they wanted to be Superman and believed that they failed. And so this is where my geeky knowledge would come into play because I would start asking them, is Superman truly invincible or does he have any kind of vulnerability? And of course, any Superman fan knows that Superman is vulnerable to kryptonite. And then I would ask them if Superman's vulnerability to kryptonite makes him any less of a superhero. And of course, the answer is no. And then there'd usually be a pause. And then the service members I was working with would usually smile. And then they would say, okay, see what you did there. Because the truth is, we love Superman, not despite his vulnerability to kryptonite, but at least in part because of it. We love to see our heroes get through something that's really challenging for them. We get inspired by these stories. We don't want to read about a hero that has everything easy. We want to see how somebody overcomes obstacles, not realizing that that's what we do on a daily basis. For someone struggling with PTSD, depression, or overwhelming anxiety, even getting out of bed is already facing a villain. It's already us being able to stand up to that monster and making our bed and showing up to school work. That's already us conquering that, um, that kind of a monster. And I think that a lot of people don't realize that they're already everyday heroes. Thank you. And in, in fact, I grew up with very bad uh, male role models and Superman was... Uh, kind of took the place as a role model for me. So, and I think, I guess a lot of, uh, a lot of people feel that way. Absolutely. So, Absolutely. Geek culture right now is the hottest thing going. Uh, an Avengers movie will make $2 billion. But speaking from like my circle of, my, of friends when I was growing up, you know, a, a lot of us were the, the kids that were bullied or the kids that had problems at home with their parents. What is it that you think about uh, sci-fi superheroes that gives these kids a home uh, where they could feel safe? I think that for many people who grew up thinking that they were somehow different from other people, especially people exposed to trauma, people who were abused or rejected by their family, they might see almost like a point of connection in the fictional characters that they're watching or reading about in that they're seeing another individual who's going through something similar, who also might feel, for example, rejected or bullied or abused. And when they see that that character overcome their own pain, their own um, trauma, their own origin story, they're able to see that they're not alone. They're able to see that perhaps there's hope out there and somebody can understand them. And then usually there's a realization that if somebody wrote a story like this, then they're not alone in feeling this way. I know for me, in watching the first X-Men movie and just about every superhero and sci-fi and fantasy movie ever since, it's been the realization that not only do the writers get it, but also all the fans in that theater probably get it. And so it creates this feeling of community. It creates this understanding that we're not alone and allows people to actually explore their own mental health struggles through the use of metaphor by being able to talk about the fictional characters' examples, then allowing them further to then understand their own struggles too. Hollywood has a little bit of a spotty track record. Uh, What do you think of how Hollywood has treated uh, mental health issues in the past? And as our culture is changing, do you think the portrayals have improved in the last few years or? I think that's a great question. Yeah, I think that stereotypically in the past, a number of um, Hollywood movies and television shows would portray villains as having been quote unquote crazy. And I have a real issue with that word. I really don't like that word. But a lot of villains, especially in certain fandoms, would be portrayed as having had a mental health disorder. And that would be kind of the main explanation for why the villain had committed 
let's say, murderous acts. And unfortunately, that for many years did a huge disservice to the mental health community because it created the stigma of leading people to believe that mental health problems would automatically lead to violence when in most instances, that's not true. I I do think that over the past decade, there's been a shift both in Hollywood, but then also in, I think, in publishing and writing in terms of uh, demonstrating that mental health is something that everyone goes through. A lot of heroes nowadays are portrayed as having to um, go through some kind of mental health difficulty or maybe um, having an ongoing mental health struggle. So I do think that it is starting to improve. Um, I would certainly like to see more diversity in, a, across different types of mental health, um, as well as representation of genders and um, ethnic backgrounds, LGBT, etc. Um, I think we're starting to see more of it, but I'm hoping that over the next decade, we're going to see even more. Can you think of any examples of maybe from the past that were particularly bad representations of mental health issues or maybe some on the flip side that are particularly good that are that you respect uh, what they were going with there? Yeah. Um, you know, I think historically a lot of comics, unfortunately, have represented a lot of villains as um, having been all bad. Um, I'm, I'm a big fan of both DC and Marvel. I think that, you know, decades ago, um, unfortunately, some of these comic books, uh, for example, um, like some of the um, DC comic books might have represented um, a lot of villains as having had mental health issues and then therefore having to be thrown in a mental institution in Arkham Asylum and kind of just villainizing mental illness. Since then, DC has done a much, much better job. So a lot of the comic books that are coming out now, a lot of graphic novels, a lot of movies are doing a better job of that. For example, Diana, Princess of Amazons is um, a young uh, reader book that just came out, a graphic novel from DC demonstrating how Wonder Woman had um, actual uh, difficulties uh, growing up in terms of her um, inability to fit in with other people, having been the only child growing up in Themyscira, her experiencing loneliness and, and insecurity and feeling not good enough. And so now we're starting to see a lot more of really helpful representation of mental health. I think that TV shows, Marvel TV shows, for example, like Jessica Jones and Punisher did a tremendous job of doing their research in depicting mental health. TV show like Young Justice on DC side is doing a wonderful job of depicting mental health. So I think we're starting to see a lot more really powerful representations. And I think that what really helps is when writers uh, do their research. Um, so, for example, I consult with a lot of writers on how to depict mental health accurately uh, without it being stigmatized, without it being misrepresented, re- misrepresented. And I think that creators have a responsibility of doing research when they are portraying mental health or when they're portraying any kind of cultural depiction in their writing of making sure that they have consulted and that they're portraying these accurately. And isn't it true that someone with uh, a mental illness is more likely to be the victim rather than the perpetrator of violence? Overall, statistically speaking, yes, it's true in that somebody who's struggling with mental illness or, or a variety of mental health struggles are more likely to be victimized or hurt or abused by other people than to be a perpetrator of violence, yes. Oh, cool. Um, it's. Uh, I'm glad that's changing then as far as the way it's being uh, uh, shown by, yeah, portrayed by Hollywood. And comic books and everything. In fact, you may uh, may have some comic books as well, correct? Correct. Yes, I have um, my first graphic novel coming out on March first in the United States, and I believe April twentieth in Europe. Fun, fun, fun. What's it called? Thank you. It's called Dark Agents. It's a graphic novel series, and the first uh, book is about Violet, who is a witch who joins. And Hades' uh, underworld intelligence agency to learn how to fight monsters, except that she first has to learn how to, essentially, how to fight her own internal monsters of her PTSD. I like it already. Can't wait. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. So we've had uh, recent films uh, just in the past year. 
Joker, which is an incredible movie. And Midsommar is a horror movie. It's one of my favorite films from last year that have really focused heavily uh, on uh, mental illness. Do you think that the success of these films, and obviously Joaquin Phoenix is nominated for an Oscar, uh, do you think that that's helping to change the stigma of, you know, hey, we can't talk about this, you know, let, let's let, let's keep this under wraps. Do you think it's helping the to move the conversation forward? I think it's definitely starting a conversation. So after the Joker movie, a lot of people have been talking about how the, unfortunately, the medical system is failing a lot of individuals with mental health issues. And I, I think that unfortunately it's true in that a lot of individuals are not able to afford the help that they need or don't know how to find it. And I think that these kind of films are able to allow people to see just how much people with mental illness might be struggling. And so hopefully providing more empathy and understanding for people that have a lifelong struggle with this. Hopefully. So I don't want to keep uh, keep you for too long, but I do definitely want to uh, find out where people can find you and discover your work and uh, learn all about uh, superhero therapy. Thank you. The best way to do so is through my website, superhero-therapy.com. I am also active on Twitter. So my Twitter handle is at shadow quill, quill like a feather, and on Instagram, which is Dr. Janina Scarlet Official. Wonderful. Uh, thank you very, very much for uh, educating me and everyone who's listening. And uh, we very much appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And that will wrap up the first ever episode of this podcast, Will Save the World. Thank you so much for listening and thank you for your patience. I know we have some issues to work out as far as production goes. That will be handled moving forward. I am already at work on the second episode, which will hopefully be coming very soon. My plan is to eventually make this a weekly broadcast dealing with a different subject every episode. Feel free to reach out to me at thispodcastwillsavetheworld at gmail.com. And remember, like any great franchise, your story isn't over yet. 